This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. I guess the thing that's been most striking for me is seeing how, as the administration policies have gotten more and more and more aggressive and caused more and more suffering at the border, how the fundamental logic driving people north hasn't changed at all. I'm joined in the studio today by Ladan Nasseri, a journalist who has covered Middle East politics for Bloomberg and is a producer at Tempest Tossed. Hi, Ladan. Hi, Alex. It's great to be here. Recently, Ladan and I sat down with Jonathan Blitzer, a staff writer at The New Yorker, who was one of the sharpest minds covering U.S. immigration today. He's written articles on the Remain in Mexico policy, the role of climate change and the movement of Guatemalans to the United States, and the politics of immigration. And they're all well worth reading if you want to understand the complexity of immigration politics, and in particular, the impact of Trump's policies on human lives. We were delighted that Jonathan took the time to talk with us at Tempest Tossed. John Blitzer, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. John, there's been a lot happening in the past couple of years, and you've covered the Muslim ban to ending DACA to the asylum situation at the southwest border. And you cover it both from the policy perspective and also from the facts on the ground. We wanted to know, where do you go for the best information? In other words, how do you even make the difference between what's factual and, and what's mm-hmm. fiction? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess there are two. It's a, it's a great question. There are there's sort of two broad ways I think about that. The first is the, on the policy side of things. Um, it's been very hard, um, not just for me, for, for everyone, I think, covering the administration, uh, to keep tabs on not just all of the policies, but all the personnel, um, because there's been so much turnover. Part of my background at The New Yorker is from the, in, I used to work in the fact-checking department. So I was schooled in The New Yorker mode of fact-checking complex political stories. And what that would typically consist of would be, you know, you get, you come up with a body of information through various sources, and then you go back to different government officials, and you put those data points to one of these officials, and you say, okay, walk me through this. Uh, Is this accurate? Uh, To what extent is this a fair characterization? In my experience, even when there was ugly pushback from the government, um, there was never, I never had the sense exactly that the government was engaging in that back and forth in bad faith. Um, even when we were at the height of antagonism uh, between uh, an official wherever, CIA, DOJ, DHS, and, and, and our reporting, there was always a sense that, okay, this is, the, the press is going to play its role, the government's going to play its role. Um, you know, maybe the government tries to hide the ball, and part of the job of the journalist is to figure out what that game is. Um, in this case, it's been harder because I do think there have been instances where, uh, depending on which officials you've dealt with and which departments you're dealing with, you can't always get a straight answer on things from the government. Uh, and when people are willing to talk, they're generally not long for this world in the administration. And so what typically happens is you cultivate sources, and then they're out, and you're starting from scratch. So it's a long-winded way of saying uh, it's very hard to get good information out of the government itself. And and I think it just puts a particular premium on really pounding the pavement and trying to find people who are in a position to lay out the policy specifics, 
to kind of remove some of the political spin from it. It's very hard to sometimes disentangle the political agendas, especially in an administration like this one, where there's so much infighting. Um, so I don't know that that get, gets me a, an actual answer to your question, but it, it speaks to the kind of the struggles and the rigors of, of that side of the equation. And then the flip side of it is being on the ground. Um, I would say that one of the real educations for me that I was not quite expecting is there is so much fear and confusion on the ground, whether it's whether you're embedded with the, the so-called migrant caravan, whether you're, uh, you know, stuck in a northern Mexican border city, um, whether you're even in a community, say, in New York uh, on the eve of the public charge rule coming out. There is so much confusion and fear and anxiety in these communities that it's actually, I mean, that's part of the story in many ways. But it also means that you have to be very careful about where you're getting your information when you're on the ground. Um, so understanding that, okay, the on-the-ground reality is 95% of the story here, and we need to be true to what we're seeing on the ground. But um, we also have to be conscientious about, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking to an asylum seeker in southern Mexico who tells me a particular story that I can independently verify or or disprove, but it's on me also to sort that side out. I, I'm, I'm amazed actually at how, how complex the task is of constantly interrogating the information that's coming your way. Um, because I think it's never the case that it comes straight at you without spin. And sometimes the spin is put on the ball intentionally to confuse, and sometimes it's put on the ball unintentionally out of anxiety, which is a totally understandable human reality. So let's actually go to um, some of the topics that you've covered recently. Um, you wrote in one of your uh, articles, and I'm, I'm quoting here, there is a crisis facing the U.S. asylum system, and it's been decades in the making. But ending asylum as we know it creates a crisis all its own. Can you elaborate on that? Most people writing and reporting on the situation at the border or in, or in Central America in particular uh, are appalled by what the administration has done and continues to attempt to do to the asylum system. Um, and so a lot of the journalistic work has consisted in trying to expose what the realities are of the administration's effort to basically end asylum at the southern border. Um, and that's no small task, to be clear. I mean, that's, you know, we're talking about family separation. We're talking about these safe third country agreements with regional governments. We're talking about the migrant protection protocols, which is responsible for more than 50,000 people being stranded in northern Mexico. We're talking about the transit ban. I mean, we can go on and on and talk about all of these things. And each one of these policies is extraordinarily complex, has all kinds of different moving bureaucratic parts, has obviously, you know, huge human consequences. Um, so for a long time, much of the work that I was doing was focused just on laying bare all of the realities of that. Um, but I think more and more as I've kind of gotten mired in this, um, I am trying to ask bigger questions, and, and, and I don't have any of the answers to them, but sort of ask bigger questions about, okay, what would a series of solutions look like that do satisfy some of our more humane impulses? How do we keep uh, an asylum system that is going to reject the majority of claims that come through it, how do we improve that system? You know, where are the lines that we have to respect? Where do we draw certain lines in existing asylum law? What kind of action does Congress have to take? These are, these are big 
big policy questions that I'm not entirely sure. I mean, in fact, I know the Democrats don't have much better answers on. Uh, I think everyone can agree in the Trump era that what the Trump administration is doing is terrible. Um, but I think it's a harder conversation to have to say, okay, well, what, what if, if Donald Trump didn't exist, uh, if we had a Hillary Clinton presidency, what would we want? There would still be a crisis, at the, a humanitarian crisis facing the asylum system at the southern border. Yes, it's true the Trump administration has, I would say, deliberately made that situation worse so that it could serve as a pretext to make sweeping changes to the system as a whole. But, but I, I'm also trying to begin to rehearse some of these policy conversations. That's more and more on my mind. So as you've talked to, to, to the Democrats about this, have they come up with an answer f- uh, for you? What, what do they say about when you pose the question that way, that there'd be a humanitarian crisis no matter what, what should we be doing about it? Well, I'm of two minds about their responses. I mean, for the most part, they don't, they, they say all of the things that I think we would all agree on. They say, look, cutting aid to the region is nonsensical. We need to restart aid. Uh, we need to hire more immigration judges. We need, we, you know, there are, at this point, there's a stable of proposals, all of which are commonsensical. I don't know that any of those policies meaningfully changes the game uh, of, of what the real realities are facing the asylum system. Um, but the typical responses I get are these slightly more technocratic things, which I, which I appreciate. And, and I do actually think there's an argument to be made that, all right, well, before you completely end the asylum system as we know it, maybe if we were acting in good faith, it would make sense to do a few things that would at least alleviate the crisis at the border uh, and that would eliminate some measure of human suffering and allow us to have this conversation in, in kind of a calmer way. From a political standpoint, I'm also wondering, okay, what's the smartest move? You're in a campaign season. Um, does it make sense to stick your neck out and offer a kind of wonky technical proposal of your own that people will or won't understand and that you'll then be forced to defend? Or are you going to address the immediate threat in front of you, which is the Trump administration, all of the things it's done at the border? So I'm of two minds. I want to press Democrats increasingly to, to offer holistic solutions, or at least to be honest about the, the real complexities of the problem. But I, I understand, too, that if I'm given 20 minutes with someone uh, in Congress to talk, I, I would like to spend the lion's share of that time talking about MPP as opposed to some abstract— MPP being the migrant, migrant protection protocols, protocols at the border. So, but, but I do think it's, it's a balancing act uh, journalistically to try to engage these other questions. The other way of looking at it, of course, is, um, you know, say Trump doesn't win in 2020. Say we get a progressive Democrat in office— um, I don't know that the problem, I mean, I know for sure the problem is not going to go away. It's not going to be solved immediately. And I think most likely what will happen is a problem like this, for which there isn't an obvious political constituency, will get shunted to the side. So one of the elements of the Trump response has been to try to increase detention at the border as a way to deter people from coming. And they've tried to upset the Flores Agreement, which put limits on the detention of children. Uh, they've detained families and created new sites. As you've been at the border, what, what have been the impacts of those policies? What have you seen on the ground there? I've spent a lot of time uh, along the border, mostly in, mostly in West Texas, actually. Um, and... You know, I've seen I've seen evidence of all of the things that you've described. Um, that you know, overcrowded facilities, uh, overcrowded customs and border protection facilities right at the border, uh, ICE detention centers that are also overcrowded, uh, in which people are stuck in a particular sort of limbo because there are so many competing 
administration policies, some of which have been partially rescinded, some of which are being rammed through in other ways. And so people's lives are really in the balance in a way that um, prior to these last few years I had never seen. Um, but, you know, I, I guess a big, a big question in all of this, um, and it's not an exclusively Trump-era question, is the value of deterrence in guiding U.S. border policy. Um, and I don't think that this administration, on the kind of broad continuum of what governments are willing to do in the, in the way of um, trying to deter migrants, this administration is obviously way off to one side of it. But that fundamental logic of basically trying to deter people from coming, to treat them in such a way um, that you can send a message back to the region that people will, will stop coming. During the Obama years, the, the bureaucratic term for it was the consequence delivery system. <laughs> um, and that referred to increasing enforcement of the border, detaining people uh, who had asylum claims for longer, uh, all of these things. Um, I, have ne I guess the thing that's been most striking for me is seeing how, as the administration policies have gotten more and more and more aggressive and caused more and more suffering at the border, how the fundamental logic driving people north hasn't changed at all. I actually think one of the most telling experiences I've had recently has been at the Mexico-Guatemala border, where I met with a group of Honduran asylum seekers uh, who were in, at the time, Tapachula, just, just across the, the uh, Guatemala-Mexico border in southern Mexico. And I was in a room in a housing complex with, I think there must have been maybe a dozen people, all Honduran, I would say of the dozen people, eight of them had been deported in the last six months. And there they all were in southern Mexico making the trip again. And all of them regaled me with stories of actual literal horrors in U.S. detention. One of them, in fact, uh, signed voluntary departure, basically agreed to waive his asylum claim because he could not stand to be in U.S. detention any, any, any longer. They all get back to Honduras. They're presented with the same problems they fled the, in the first instance and they're back on the road. And so that was just one of those experiences where, you know, I'm, I'm spending all of this time at the U.S.-Mexico border, and I'm seeing all these increasingly punitive measures that have been put in place designed specifically to thwart people from making the journey. And then you go one border south from there, and you see just this, it's the same cycle. Yeah, but you, I mean, a spokesman for the administration at this point might say, yeah, but these measures actually have worked at the southwest border. The apprehensions are way, way down over the last three, four months. Is, is that not true? No, that's a good point. Um, they are down. Uh, I don't think they're down because of deterrence-minded policies. They're down mostly because the U.S. has pressured Mexico and also some of the Central American governments, primarily Guatemala, also to some degree Honduras, They've pressured those governments to really ramp up enforcement. One of the reasons why the apprehensions are, are, are lower now at the U.S. southern border than they were five months ago is because Mexico is arresting record numbers of people because they're being pressured by the U.S. that if they don't do more to curb the flow north, that there'll be punishment. It does make me wonder in political terms, you know, what's ahead? This administration, so much of its fear-mongering around immigration is predicated on the idea of there being a crisis at the border, a kind of constant state of siege. And so... There's a little bit of a catch-22. I mean, the, the president will blow right through this catch-22. The intellectual subtleties of it will not slow him down one bit. But they certainly slow me down, which is that, you know, on the one hand, you've got an administration that wants to tout its successes in bringing these numbers down. On the other hand, it needs to continue to justify this sense of emergency that it, so that it can do more. And, and I wonder how that will play out, particularly going into 2020. 
So some immigrant advocates say that, you know, okay, let's go back a few years in history. The U.S. has actively meddled in the internal politics of, of, of the, some of those countries that you visited. As a consequence, there's an influx of immigrants coming to our country seeking a better future. From the, the reporting that you did, do you think that this argument is justified in, in any way, that the U.S. must be held responsible for the consequences of some of the actions it had in those countries? Absolutely. I wish, I wish, this, were more, I wish this were a part of the conversation uh, more routinely. I think it, it falls out because it's not immediately timely. And so it's hard to take stock of the history, and, and, and very few people are deeply invested in the history of American intervention in Central America. Um, but you're absolutely right, and I think that's very much destabilizing, I mean, name, pick, your, pick your poison. I mean, the U.S. has done it all in each of these countries, uh, and there is a direct line to be drawn between the current crisis at the border and that history. As a journalist reporting in a time, I think it's fair to say, of crisis, it's, it's a challenge to import kind of all of that history into some of these short, immediate pieces, right? Because you're on the border, you're seeing stuff, you're trying to relay the immediacy of what's going on. There's already so much misinformation about what's happening in the present that you, you want to kind of do your best to at least shine light on the realities of the current moment. But increasingly, I guess, you start to see the, the, basically the kind of misunderstanding about the, the, some of the origins of this regional migration crisis, this regional exodus. I mean, obviously, it means that people don't understand really why we're seeing what we're seeing, and people tune in only once people cross the U.S. border. It's like reading a book and picking it up and starting it at its last chapter. Um, but also, that lack of context, that lack of historical context, does lead, I think, people, even in the present, to miss key things that are happening right before our eyes right now. So, for instance, um, in Guatemala— uh, there has been a, a, a kind of legendary and, and vaunted anti-corruption body that's just been dismantled um, called the CICIG, um, which has played a huge role in combating corruption in Guatemala. And political corruption, as any expert will tell you, has a lot to do with migration patterns. It's when people feel like they have no prospects at home and that there's no way for any of their situations to be materially improved because of government corruption mismanagement that they tend to leave. Um, and so the U.S., you know, while the president, the White House, DHS, focuses just on this narrow question of enforcement and Guatemalan migrants showing up at the southern border, of which there have been more and more in recent years, uh, the State Department simultaneously has basically withdrawn its support from this anti-corruption body. This anti-corruption body picked a fight with the corrupt outgoing president, uh, an American ally, and the U.S., having, despite having funded and helped create this anti-corruption body years ago, now, because the politics are different and because, for the most part, congressional Republicans don't care about this issue of accountability, have withdrawn their support. And this anti-corruption body has basically been dismantled before our eyes. And the reason it's happened is because the U.S. has abandoned it. And so you, when you ask about this broader kind of contextual question, you know, it drives me insane that here we are so preoccupied by the number of Guatemalans showing up at the southern border, and yet there's no interest at the same time in Guatemalan politics that the U.S. has its, you know, thumb on the scale of um, that's in many ways causing a lot of this migration. So um, I think it's just, it's kind of this constant fight of trying to bring as much context as you can into individual pieces, but also expanding your sense of what it means to cover immigration. Covering immigration, I would argue, uh, means being invested also in covering the politics of Central America. I see as part of my responsibility really getting sourced up 
in Guatemalan politics, studying up on the ins and outs of Guatemalan politics, because that's this is this is part of the same uh, this is part of the same story. And so, you know, maybe maybe uh, an editor would think, oh, well, wait a second, that's like a that's a regional story, that's a foreign affairs story. And I think editors have gotten much better about this in, in making sure that you kind of widen the aperture, so it's not just immigration, immigration, border stories, border horrors, but actually questions in foreign capitals. Talking about the uh, the dynamics of Latin American countries, um, when we think about immigration, we often think. Uh, poverty and political repression and violence, you know, as these being the main cause for for immigration into the U.S. But you also reported um, about climate change as being one of the reasons for, for human migration. Um, from the reporting that you did, can you tell us about one of the places you went to where this became very apparent? Yeah, I mean... Uh, there are so many places in the region. If you're interested in, in in detailing how climate change has impacted migration, sadly, I mean, you have a lot of different places to choose from if you want to highlight that phenomenon. I, I picked. I mean, you could. There's a there's a broad swath of Central America known as the Dry Corridor, which has been experiencing massive droughts for years uh, as global warming has become more and more of an issue. Uh, so that extends from you know uh, El Salvador, Honduras to Guatemala, even to parts of southern Mexico. For me, I focused on the western highlands of Guatemala uh, for a few reasons. Above all, uh, one because the migration numbers, the emigration numbers from the western highlands of Guatemala were very, very high and have gotten higher in in, in recent years, and they've gotten higher simultaneously to various indices of climate change becoming uh, sort of clearer in that region. So it was a chance for me to really see kind of what what the practical effects were. Um, so I would go into a lot of these towns where basically what you would see, and, and every town obviously was different depending in large part on its altitude, um, but more or less the story was individual subsistence farmers not being able to grow enough food, not just to sell, but even to survive on. Um, and as that's happened, they've had they've been left with really no choice but to leave. And, and, and they've all, I mean, I guess the thing that was so striking about doing that reporting was how specific, you know, you, you, go, in, you go into a story like that with intuitions of your own. Um, and my concern, just to speak kind of strictly journalistically, was, okay, I, I'm coming in with this hypothesis. I've read a thousand academic papers on this subject. How am I going to make this real? I mean, what does this look like? You know, climate change is obviously, it, it's a hard thing to see in slow motion. I mean, you see it in terms of natural disasters and things like that, crops withering. But but what does it mean practically for someone who's just trying to make a living one one day after another? And and I was amazed at how how specific the answers were to all of these questions I had. I didn't have to coax anyone. I mean, I really didn't have to do that much prodding for people to start talking about how, for example, increased humidity has affected pests in the soil. And as various uh, funguses and insects have proliferated in the soil as a result of rising humidity, they've had to pay for pesticides and other fertilizers. And that means making less and less and less on each crop. And so it was, I mean, it was conversations that specific. Uh, and then, of course, you zoom out and you see that there were particular times of year. For, for example, one of the reasons I was interested in going to the Western Highlands was um, the previous year, uh, during the family separation crisis, by which I'm, I guess I'm referring mainly to the summer of 2018, 
um, I was in West Texas at the border, and I was meeting a lot of people from the Western Highlands of Guatemala. Um, I was just very struck by it. But it did lead me to think, is there something, was there some sort of big event or what explains this sudden influx? Um, and then you go to the Western Highlands and you go to some of these towns and they'll say, well, um, one of the consequences of climate change has been that the rainy season, which typically arrives in April, is instead coming in July. And that means people who are expecting their crops to, uh, to grow in May don't have any food. And so it was, in fact, that summer, around that time, that people were leaving uh, because they were starving. Um, so you saw all kinds of things like this. It's a complicated thing to cover. So once you get north of the border, of the U.S.-Mexico border, then American politics and, and idiosyncrasies in American law start to kind of come raining down on you. So, you know, typically, um, I think the way journalists like myself have covered this, and I'm trying to be better about it, uh, is to look at people who have uh, asylum claims based on persecution versus those who are showing up at the border and are, are described sort of antiseptically as economic migrants. And I think, in my experience, a lot of the realities are that it's so many things at once that it doesn't really make sense to impose a kind of clear-cut distinction on, oh, okay, this person's coming to the U.S. looking for work versus this person is fleeing a gang. Uh, oftentimes, it's both things. Uh, and depending on when you talk to the person, you might get one, neither, or both of those stories. Um, but with climate change, um, you know, by, t by strict definitions of asylum law uh, in the U.S., someone who's fleeing hunger as a result of climate change does not have an immediate asylum claim. I think it was really important to spotlight what was driving people north. You know, I think this is so important what you're saying because the, the, the discourse in the United States is always tends to pit what the administration says, as you said, these are economic migrants or criminals mm -hmm. coming to do bad things to the United States. And on the advocacy side, it's generally, they're all refugees. They're all entitled right. to some kind of protection here. Right. And by injecting climate change and other factors in, you're saying it's really a very complicated story. But unfortunately, the U.S. legal system doesn't really match up to that, doesn't have yeah. an avenue for that. Do you have a suggestion if you were a policymaker, what, what could be done? Or if you talked to some policymakers who are willing to explore other avenues for admission that might be able to take that into account? No, I mean, it's a really, it's such a good question. I have not, I have not yet. I mean, I, I'm now trying to put that front and center in my, in my reporting. Um, and I've not yet come to an answer that feels satisfactory. Um, you know, people talk about all sorts of things. People talk about programs in the region that would allow uh, asylum seekers to have their claims processed in third countries before they come to the U.S. to at least obviate the need to make this dangerous overland journey. That doesn't really get to the kind of root causes, the definition of what, what qualifies someone for asylum or not. As you know better than I, the jurisprudence, the asylum jurisprudence has expanded over the years to account for populations, to, to broaden the definition of what it means to belong to a particular social group. But again, that speaks just to persecution, and that's also been I would say, turned back by this administration. Um, some people say that, you know, one of the ways of taking pressure off of the asylum system in this way would be to expand categories for legal migration, um, at least offer people more of an alter more legal alternatives to come to the U.S. and work. I mean, I, it seems sensible to me, um, but I, I actually don't, I mean, I really don't know. And, I, and you know, I, I talked to a lot, of, a lot of smart people about this, and... Everyone recognizes there's really no simple answer here, and it's hard because 
everything's buried under this sense of crisis and politicization. And so it's, it's it, it, a serious searching conversation has to be had. And if and when it happens, I'm, I, would, I would love to cover more of it. People, people are, I don't mean to, to make light of the fact, people are thinking about it. And there are white papers being written. There are, I mean, in, 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 in all kinds of contexts, the conversation is happening. But I don't, from a practical standpoint, and I'm limited a bit, I'm hampered a bit by the fact that journalistically, the, the more abstract the conversation becomes, the harder it is for me to make that vivid to a reader. Um, so maybe I have to get more creative too in finding, a, finding ways of um, telling stories around the conversation and not just around the lives of people who are trapped in these cycles of migration. So, so let's move from the conceptual back to the nitty-gritty. You mentioned earlier that uh, we've had a, a significant turnover in, in government personnel. We've had four uh, Department of Homeland Secretaries. Even not all of them were confirmed. Some were just acting. We've got a huge turnover at the lower levels of, of DHS. So um, um, just uh, recently, Kevin uh, McAleenan, the most recent acting secretary, left. Uh, Trump tweeted that uh, he was uh, spending more time with his family. That was his desire. What's the real story here? <laughs> well, I think McAleenan is a really interesting figure in all of this. I mean, he's presided over some of the most aggressive measures adopted by the administration uh, to restrict asylum at the southern border. And yet I do think that in the universe of people who would serve under the current president, he is um, a kind of steward of DHS, a kind of non-political, non-ideological steward of the department. And I think it's important to make that distinction. So it's important to be clear-eyed about what he's done and what's happened during his tenure at DHS. And it's also important to, to differentiate what's motivated him and what's animated his role in all of this uh, as distinct from the viewpoints of some people at the White House who I do think have a much sort of more racially tinged and or ideological vision. So essentially, McAleenan comes in at a time when, as you say, a number of his predecessors have been unceremoniously sacked, including his immediate predecessor, Christian Nielsen, who pretty much did everything the president would have wanted. She was fired because migration in the region continued. <laughs> and so the president essentially held her responsible, personally responsible for the fact that people were fleeing Central America. Uh, so McLean comes in at a time when, you know, there's just high levels of suspicion of anyone who takes over. Um, there's this kind of immediate loyalty test that everyone is subjected to of needing to swear fealty to Trump. McLean has been, is a career guy. Um, he's been at Customs and Border Protection for years. He's, I can say from personal experience, extremely smart, extremely thoughtful, data-driven. Um, and he is someone who took over at a time when it was clear that the only way to move forward, and in many ways to save the department from just falling into this kind of outright politicization from the White House, was to bring numbers down at the southern border. And so as someone, as an operator with deep experience on the enforcement side of the migration equation, um, he recognized that the moves to be made were all in Central America and not at the southern border. Uh, and so some of the first things he did was he started to meet with leaders in Mexico, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in El Salvador, to impress upon them the importance of increasing enforcement. So that began to have its effect. Now, it certainly helped that the president simultaneously 
is actually threatening to impose tariffs on all of these countries, which scares the hell out of these countries and does bring them to the negotiating table, which, you know, you have to, you have to acknowledge that the president's rhetoric has had that effect on some of these governments. But, but McLean's thinking is to kind of engage regional partners that the only way, the only way to tamp down on the numbers of immigrants showing up at the southern border is to actually get the regional governments involved. But it's interesting because, as you said earlier, a large number of people who come to the U.S. seeking asylum are termed as economic migrants, and their asylum claims are rejected. So here's where you see a sort of a philosophical difference of opinion. A more progressive-minded person might see a high rejection rate of asylum seekers at the southern border and think, okay, the system isn't adequately accounting for the realities on the ground that's driving, that, that are driving this exodus. Someone like McAleenan, who's kind of deeply invested in the enforcement side of this work and has been forever, sees high rates of rejections as proof that really the asylum system is not working, hasn't been working. The people who are showing up to make their claims aren't really making their claims necessarily in good faith. And as a result, he feels more comfortable taking drastic measures, both at the border and in the region, to really tamp down on asylum. I, he, I know for a fact ideology doesn't drive him, racism doesn't drive him, he's, not, he's neither of those things. Um, but he does think about this in a very, very specific uh, enforcement kind of context. So and that's I'll, led I'll, to a lot of what we've I'm going to interrupt you because I still want to hear what the backstory is on his, oh, yeah, his firing, yeah. but it just raise this question about him. So even if um, only 20 or 30 percent of asylum claims are being granted as bona fide, um, when the administration's policy is basically to stop all asylum claims from being made, how does he feel about the 30% that he's now sending back to situations of persecution, danger, violence, and the like? I, I, I'm, glad, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you ask it that way. I mean, that's a question I've put to people at DHS myself is, okay, look, for all intents and purposes, the net effect of a lot of policies that have been put in place under McAleenan and track with the agenda of the White House. And does it matter so much that the White House is motivated by maybe racism and ideology and DHS is motivated more, or McAleenan has been motivated more by this kind of technocratic uh, obsession with bringing the numbers down? I, the, the truth is, I don't think he has seen uh, ending the asylum system at the border effectively as such a great sacrifice because I think so much of his perception of what's gone on to the border has been that people are more or less gaming the system. He's also, and this is an important thing to consider, um, a big value for, for McLean and, and, and his leadership at DHS has been also to try to improve the number, you know, lower the numbers at the southern border and to do that as a way of proving to the White House that, okay, we can turn some aspects of aid back on in the form of, investing in the asylum systems of each of these countries. So to hear DHS defend some of these policies that, to my view, looks like it's ending asylum, they'll say, well, look, we are in a moment when the president has pretty much ended all aid to the region, and in each of these agreements, we're able to secure $40, $50 million to stand up asylum systems in these countries. I don't think of that. I don't think that's a meaningful trade-off. But that's 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 at least the thinking, the rationalization. So when you ask, all right, what's the bottom line? What? Why did he leave when he did? I do think he came in with a concrete set of objectives. I think those objectives were one: lower 
numbers of apprehensions at the southern border to put in place some sort of a regional agreement with Central American governments to get them more deeply invested uh, in curbing irregular migration. I think they did have high hopes for getting farther in negotiations with the Mexicans. So I think for him, his the, the, the rationale was, okay, if I can achieve some of these objectives as an institutionalist, I can at least save the department from descending into this kind of Trumpian chaos. That said, the president has also undercut him. I don't think they had an immediate confrontation in the way that the president has had with previous secretaries of DHS, but the president never uh, never nominated him formally to the post. So he, he was in an acting role um, for five months, which is, I think, the longest anyone served in that role as an acting DHS head. That obviously undercuts his strength within the department. The president also goes on and hires to pol- names to political positions under McAleenan, people over-the-top partisans. I mean, absolutely wacky partisans. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli, Mark Morgan, these guys to run USCIS, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services and Customs and Border Protection. Those guys are not, those guys are under McAleenan in the DHS hierarchy, but because they're political appointees who are constantly rehearsing for McAleenan's job with Trump, they're appearing independently. They're freelancing and appearing on Fox News. They're giving press conferences. They're tweeting at journalists. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, whose own agency has nothing to do with immigration enforcement, is out there on TV announcing ICE raids. I mean, it's that level of chaos, and McAleenan couldn't impose meaningful discipline over them because the president effectively tied his hands behind his back. But I do think the clear reality is he probably would have stayed longer if he wasn't dealing with all of these crazy partisan insubordinates. So it's January 2021. What's the immigration story you're writing? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I, just just this, this weekend, I sat down with Julian Castro and his, his brother, Joaquin Castro, and, and actually asked a similar kind of question to them. Um, and I guess one of the main questions I had for them was, assuming Trump loses re-election, um, how do you pick up the pieces? Uh, I think one of the major questions is what is con- what is what does Congress even look like at the end of this administration? I mean, w- this is what we were talking about the other day. Um, with or I was talking about the other day with with the with uh, Julian and Joaquin Castro. You know, you look at comprehensive immigration reform in 2013. All of the Republican players who helped push that comprehensive immigration bill over the over the goal line in the Senate. I mean, almost all of them are gone. Uh, two of them, I think three, I think there are of the thir- maybe the 13 Republicans that voted for it in, in 2013, five are left. I think th- maybe three are going to lose re-election. I mean, it's, it, so who, who are good faith dealers on the Republican side? Because really a lot of the bigger systemic changes that have to happen will have to happen through Congress. And part of the problem, part of the gridlock has been that there's never been partisan consensus on any of the key points. And as a result, presidents have had to act administratively. So I, I think what will likely happen is the congressional picture will, be as, picture will be as messy and chaotic as it's been to date. And there will be a rash of administrative measures taken by an executive, um, I'm, let's say a Democratic executive, um, that will reverse some of the Trumpian reversals of the Obama administrative actions. Uh, and so I think that will be the immediate thing, will be a kind of, uh, a, a kind of list of things like 
you know, reinstating enforcement priorities for ICE. Um, I imagine, I don't think DACA is going to be resolved anytime soon, although we'll see next, next month, the Supreme Court will hear arguments about it. Maybe there'll be something on that. Uh, so I think it's going to be a lot of these kind of narrower measures um, that there'll be an immediate rash of executive action on, because I, I don't think Congress is going to be in much of a better position to do anything. I imagine, as you say, that the, some of the policies at the border are going to be pretty tough to unwind because the Democrats are not going to be interested in undertaking actions that are going to suddenly cause a spike of people arriving at the southwest border, right? So they they may be trapped in it. I remember when Clinton was elected, he ran on uh, the policy of changing the interdiction policy of Haitians coming to the United States, and he got into office, and the first thing he did was announce that he was going to keep the interdiction policy yeah. in place. Uh, you think that's possible on yeah. the Democrats win in 2020? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's an obvious, again, I don't think there's an obvious political constituency for some of these tougher questions that have to do, deal with the asylum system. And I, I don't know that the Democrats are going to immediately want to take those on, which is one of the reasons why I do think it's important, particularly as the Democratic primary uh, goes on, and it's a dynamic field, is to get some of these questions in now. Because I do think that when the smoke clears, whichever way it shakes out, if a Democrat does assume office in 2021, I think there's going to be this reality, and I think I, and I think elements of the progressive left are going to be deeply disillusioned. John, as a reporter, you're living in a tough time for reporters, where there are sort of daily attacks on your your craft. Um, does that take its uh, psychological or personal toll on you, or does it make you sort of recommit more to the work? What's the impact been for you? Um, I think that I think with the climate. What the climate puts a particular premium on, and which I, th I think is probably foremost on my mind doing this work now, is to try to be as accurate as I possibly can. And it feels unfair in a way because it's like you know you're up against an administration that has really no compunction about lying or distorting facts. Um, but I do think it makes me feel that it's probably more important than ever to um, be careful and to make sure that the information I put out is accurate and, and is sort of unassailable in its accuracy. Um, it actually matters as a practical point. You know, my, my biggest fear writing these stories often is that one stray detail, uh, however technical, however small, uh, might uh, lead to claims that the reporting is flawed, the thinking is biased. And, and to me, if it's, it's, it's an ironic it's an ironic preoccupation to have because, you know, the lives, I mean, the most important thing in the, the most important element in this reporting by a mile are the lives of the people affected by these policies. But one of the ways I think of being most conscientious about telling those stories without without unwanted complication is to make sure that the more technical stuff um, is accurate and doesn't allow the other side to say, oh, you see, this is all bogus. And what that means is actually having to sort of double the effort uh, when it comes to making sure that no biases of my own are blinding me to factual inaccuracies. Um, it's a funny, also a funny question because what does it mean to get comment from the government now? I mean, that, that's a part of the process. It's part of the process that I've been trained on is that when you do, when you do reporting, particularly when you have good sourced reporting about the kind of machinations of people in high positions, um, you have to then go to those departments or those officials and ask for comment. Um, 
it feels, I will say, it feels strange to do now because I don't think that you're necessarily going to get straight answers. Do you do it anyway? How important is it to, you know, there, there used to be uh, kind of thinking about, okay, we need to be sure we give the government enough time to meaningfully respond. That's part of it. It's not, not just putting questions to someone, but giving them 48 hours to respond, 24 hours to respond. So it doesn't just look like a pro forma thing. Um, I feel at times conflicted in this climate uh, about what it means to even do that when on the other side you only get bile and, you know, and, and imprecation and insults and threats. Um, but I do think for the most part, and I actually think this is one thing, I mean, this sounds like a high-minded answer, I realize, but um, one thing I think my colleagues and I share in is a commitment to that process. And I think actually in, in a way, that process means more now than it ever did. Um, even, even though, you know, when you, when, you, when you nail a story with this administration, if it really strikes close to home, they're going to accuse you of the same thing that they would accuse you of if you hadn't taken these additional precautions. But I think philosophically, uh, it matters to have everything bolted down and to follow the same procedure you always would follow, especially now when errors, even, well, even, even honest mistakes made in the line of complicated work can be weaponized against you. I think there's a real kind of added pressure to, to do everything as scrupulously and carefully as possible. All right, well, let's uh, maybe end on a bit more of a personal note here. From all the reporting that you did over the years, is there a scene or an anecdote that really moved you and stayed with you? Hmm. In, the last, in the last year and a half or two years, I would say one of the, most, one of the actual most interesting moments uh, I had, I was in southern Mexico, I was in Oaxaca, um, and I was in this tiny town Um, and the population of this town was, I believe, 4,000. And at that point, the migrant caravan from Central America, primarily Honduran, was crossing through southern Mexico en route to the U.S. And at that point, the sum total of the members of the caravan, the families traveling together, was 5,000. So you had the caravan that was passing through this tiny little town in Oaxaca actually outnumbered the residents in the town itself. So this is end of October uh, 2018, at a moment when, obviously, midterm elections were coming up, and the president's main message was, you know, look at, look at this, like, horde of marauders. They're coming north. They're going to arrive just in time for the midterms. He called it the election of the caravan, Trump did. So, so anyway... I, I found out that this town was going to be where the caravan was going. And so I spent some time in this town. And I was in the general store and t talking to people. Basically, everyone in this town were making preparations for when the caravan was going to come. They, were, they decided to close school the next day. Uh, you know, local businesses were closing, were, were closing up. The general store, for example, decided it would, it would lock its front door but would sell some products through a a window which had bars on it. No one knew what to expect. Everyone was nervous, but people were also trying to show solidarity with migrants because, in fact, many of these Oaxacans had actually been migrants in the U.S. at some time or another. Um, and I remember I was in the general store and interviewing the store owner and hearing a voice in the distance over a megaphone. Um, and all I could hear, because I was inside, all I was hearing was something about a caravan 
And I go out in search, of, I was with a photographer friend, and we go out in search of this voice, thinking that we're going to find ourselves in front of town hall, and there's going to be a bunch of politicians speaking to a megaphone, or, you know, municipal government leaders speaking into a megaphone, um, telling everyone that there's, you know, here's the agenda for tomorrow. And in fact, we're following, you know, we're following this, this, this voice, and we arrive at this tiny little blue house, and inside the blue house is a woman who's maybe 85, 86 years old in her pajamas sitting at her desk. Uh, and on her desk is a microphone. And she has a stack of announcements. Some are typed out, some are handwritten. And she reads the announcements from her one-bedroom house. And on the, the, the roof of her house is a kind of giant, it's like a broomstick. And tied to the broomstick is a speaker that projects her voice out. And her job is to basically, she's the kind of town crier. She reads announcements to this town. And so, you know, one of the announcements was like, okay, Doña Elena has, you know, fresh uh, pork come over and it's, you know, it's, it's 10 pesos a pound, whatever. Um, and she's reading all these announcements. And it turns out that this woman who's sitting in her pajamas uh, reading these announcements got an announcement from the municipal government to make, to make preparations for the caravan. But what I remember most sitting in her living room talking to her about this uh, was how she would improvise with each announcement. And she said at the end of this long announcement about all the preparations that were being made for the caravan, she said, and let's please remember, we're all Christians. We must treat our Christian brothers and sisters as Christians as we are in a spirit of faith. And I just, I, I just loved that. I just loved, I loved meeting the town crier. That was, I would say, one of, one of my favorite experiences. Thank you so much for the conversation, John. We really enjoyed having you with us today. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Alenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest.com all one word at gmail.com.